Well, good morning. My name is Adam. I am on staff here with Mission View doing youth ministry. And the reason I play that video is in defense of all students out there. I don't know anyone that has ever sat on a flagpole for 50 days. But people like to complain about what students do and what is hip and cool with the students. So I just show that video to show everybody that people are weird in general. And it doesn't happen only now. But really, we are moving into a series uh, this morning called Counterculture, which is from a book by David Platt. We just got done with James, and now we're moving to Counterculture. And in thinking about this series and what we're going to talk about, uh, my job is to provide a little introduction. You all should have received a card in a, the past week or two uh, detailing some of the things we're going to talk about in the next month or so. And uh, I'm really, I was struggling to think about what a, how am I going to introduce this topic of culture? Well, how do, I, how do I even define culture in general? This is uh, the definition I found that I think is best suited for us. The behaviors and beliefs characteristic of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. So what you just saw, pole sitting, or whatever it's called, it was a weird cultural fad back in the 20s. And I uh, love being part of youth ministry specifically because I am hip and in the know on all cultural fads. Does anybody know what FOMO is? FOMO is fear of missing out. I just discovered this. I just went on a mission trip with students for a week. We went down to Camp Echoing Hills in Warsaw, and uh, I got to learn about all sorts of different things as it relates to youth culture. So it's great. But um, as, as, as weird as pole sitting is, there's all sorts of elements of culture uh, and things that are like that today. I have a friend uh, that I went to school with who's from Spain. And have you guys ever played catchphrase? The game where you have like a little buzzword that you have to try to get people to figure out what it is. And then you click it and you go to the next one. You have to see how many you can do. There's one that's pop culture. And my friend from Spain just could not do it because he didn't know. He's like, hey, what are bell bottoms? Like, hey, what's bop it? You know, stuff like that. And so whether it's bop it or bell bottoms, there's all sorts of weird cultural stuff. And uh, this definition that I found is so vague. It's basically saying culture is stuff that people do. Let me read uh, uh, an article I found. This is from the Babylon Bee, which is like the Christian version of the onion. And this is what it says. This is about Christian subculture. Ready? Man perfects the side hug. Reports flood out of the Bible Belt indicate a local man of God, Jonathan Flynn, has perfected the side hug, TM. And he said, I think I have it down. The 34-year-old deacon told reporters Wednesday, I've been side hugging for years, but I often felt I made things awkward. So according to Flynn, the Lord's preferred embrace can be ministered with seven easy steps. One, identify the sister that you feel led to hug. Two, pray to ensure your heart is in the right place. Three, relax because the side hug, TM, was made for man, not man for the side hug. Walk, don't run toward her with a smiling happy Lord's Day or whatever suits the occasion. Five, gradually pivot your torso 60 to 90 degrees as you extend one arm. Six, clutch her far shoulder, gently pull in and release after a full one Mississippi. And seven, walk away and don't be creepy. <laughs> you guys are laughing because Christians know that side hugs are weird and awkward. So if you are 
a Christian, generally you know that that's something that happens in the churched world. People do this awkward side hug thing. But that's part of culture. I've been watching, uh, I've been watching Downton Abbey. Don't make fun of me. But I've been watching Downton Abbey, and it's a really cool show because you could see the culture of like the high-class people that live in this abbey. But then it also details the, uh, the servants and their life in the servant quarters. So these are weird cultural things. So whether it's bell-bottoms or bop it, I want to define culture as something like the reality of the world we live in at the present time. Whether it's small or large scale, whether it's across time or people groups, there is culture. It's the reality of the world we live in at the present time. So here's another aspect of culture. Ready? Human trafficking is a multi-million dollar industry that has largely been hidden in the shadows, but cases have been reported in rural, urban, and suburban communities in all 50 U.S. states. According to the U.S. Federal Bureau of Information Crime Reports, Ohio has ranked as high as fifth among all states in total reported human trafficking cases, with Toledo being identified as the fourth highest ranking city in the nation for recruiting victims into the illegal trade. That's from the Ohio Department of Health. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimates there are 4.5 million people trapped in forced sexual exploitation globally. And so, as we move into this series, what we're going to talk about are some things like this. Poverty, divorce, pornography. While they're not as funny as Boppet and Bell Bottoms, these are things that are equally real. And if we're going to talk about the reality of the world we live in, we want to confront these things. And so it's really great that we're transitioning from James. James is a book that is all about how Christians are to practically live out their faith, and we desire to do that as a church. So as we go into counterculture, we're going to talk about these various social issues. But we don't want to just dive in and say, you know, how do we do this? What, you know, whatever, whatever. We need a, uh, a sort of preface. We want to zoom out and we want to begin with the gospel. So we just did a biblical study in James. This study is more topical, but each week we're going to have a specific verse that we go through. And for us, we're going to look at the words of Jesus. If you want to turn to John chapter 17... Just to get a little context, John was a disciple of Christ, so he was an eyewitness to the things he was doing. He referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, narrate the life of Christ. And as Christ goes through and does his public ministry, as we get to John 17, he's going to let out this big prayer known as the high priestly prayer before he goes into the garden and is ultimately betrayed, and that leads to his death. So that's the setup. Let me read it to you. But now I am coming to you. This is starting in uh, John 17, verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. This is his prayer. And these things I speak in the world, that they, his disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. If you're taking notes, I really love to give sort of a roadmap 
of where we're going to be going. So you can cut it into thirds, and we're going to answer three questions. After reading this passage, what's the situation? What's going on with the world? What do we need to know? What's the situation? Two, what are we to do? And three, how are we to do it? Okay, what's the situation? What are we to do? And how are we to do it? First, let me pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for these folks that have come uh, to hear from your word. God, you are good and you love us, and that is evident in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we go through these topics this morning, I pray that you would give us patience to listen to what you would have to say about these things, and ultimately that we could glorify you in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, what's the situation? I'm going to go through, and we're going to break up this verse piece by piece, or this passage piece by piece. So starting in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The word world in this passage is said a lot. It's said more than, I believe, nine times in just these couple of verses. So you remember our definition of culture is the world that we live in at a particular time, the reality of the world we live in at a particular time. So a question I have is, again, as we zoom out, before we dive into the nitty-gritty of these particular social issues, what's the reality of the world that Christians live in? What's the reality of the world Christians live in? And how do we look at that from a biblical perspective? I think in order to do that, we should start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. This is the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then he goes on, and he creates everything that we know today, the heavens and the earth, the birds of the air, the creatures of the sea, the creatures on earth, man in his own image, And finally, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that was the sixth day. Likewise, if you look in the same book that we're in, in John, in the first chapter, John says, in the beginning was the word. Uh, this is the Greek word logos, which is essentially used to describe Christ. In the beginning was Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that is not made now. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you see that from the beginning, the very first words of Scripture set up that God is creator. So if we as Christians are trying to look at how do we think about the world, we need to start with that. God is creator. My nephew is four, uh, and sometimes he plays with Play-Doh. And I distinctly remember this one time, we were pl I was playing with Play-Doh with him, and he starts to make a little snowman, because everybody makes a snowman with Play-Doh, because it's easy. So you make a snowman, and you stack three little balls on each other, and he was like, Adam, look at my snowman. And I said, great, Josh. What would happen if I just grabbed his snowman and then crushed it up and then threw it on the floor? 
what would, what would Josh do? He'd cry. Because even Josh, at the age of four, understands that creation belongs to the Creator. Creation belongs to the Creator. Let me read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So if we want to zoom out and think about what's the situation, how should Christians interact with the world, what is, what's going on in the world, we need to first understand, this is the first big point, that creation belongs to the Creator. So that's the first part. The story continues, though. In Genesis chapter 3, it talks about the fall. And I'm not going to read the fall. Um, you guys generally know it. There is a situation in the garden where Adam and Eve are walking in perfect harmony with God. And then through deception of a serpent, Eve takes fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eats it, diso directly disobeying God, gives it to her husband, Adam. And in doing so, the two are cast out of the garden. They are essentially cursed. The serpent is cursed. Ultimately, the world is cursed. And we call this the fall because now, at this point in the story, our world is tainted. And it doesn't take a lot to, to think about how our world is tainted. It doesn't take a lot to really understand that. There is trafficking. There is poverty. There are broken homes. We recently had a shooting in Orlando. And that happened since I actually was writing my notes up and I was just thinking about that. Man, this is the reality of the world we live in, that somebody could go and kill 50 people in Orlando. Likewise, Satan has a part in this world in Ephesians 2. It says this, As you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you followed the course of this world, and followed the prince of power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is talking about Satan. If you've ever seen the movie The Usual Suspects, it came out in 95, uh, Kevin Spacey says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. So think about the fact that we have this world, this, this beautiful created world by God. He is creator and we live in perfect harmony with him. But then there is the fall and now... We live in this tainted, fallen world, and, and Satan has a part in it. How do we, as Christians, reconcile these two things? Uh, I used to live in Chicago for a while, and it's really fun to live in Chicago. It's a beautiful city. And I, there's a day in the spring that everybody calls patio day because it's the day that's just warm enough where everybody will, like, take the chains off of their patio chairs and things like that. And, you, you know, you walk outside, and there's music playing. I swear I saw, like, a milkman going by. It was wonderful. And I, I see all this, and then I round the corner, and there's a homeless man digging trash out of the garbage. And I asked a professor about it one time. I said, how do I look out my window and see the beauty of, you know, these, these skyscrapers that man uh, has made and, and, and still think about the fact that it's a sinful, fallen world? And he said, you need to have, you need to have a balance. You need to have a balance of these things. Um, and in the book of Luke... Jesus encounters the same thing. So during the triumphal entry, when Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, uh, this is what happens. He tells his disciples, go ahead and grab a colt, grab a donkey, bring it back, and then we'll head in. And this is what it says. In Luke chapter 19, starting in verse something, verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, the colt, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd came and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So this is a happy, joyous time. Things are beautiful. People are rejoicing at the works of, of the king. And then this is what it says immediately after. When he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Even Christ understands the reality of the world he lives in, the reality of Jerusalem and the fact that they did not know who he was. So we need to have a balance. We cannot... As we confront these social issues and think about the world we live in, we can't operate in these two extremes. One being in complete ignorance where we hear some, some numbers and we you know, talk a little bit about trafficking and poverty and divorce and things like that and think nothing of it and go about our day. Likewise, we cannot operate in constant worry where we are so stressed out by everything Maybe, oh, I have to do so much. God, God, I know God's in charge, but I, I feel like I need to worry about all of this stuff. And you don't have a peace and, and patience and understanding that God is sovereign and he will take care of these things. So it seems like a little bit of a tall order, but that's the reality of the world we live in. So, as you move on, it's interesting that Christ says he speaks these things in the world that they may have his joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, that's still John 17, verse 13. Why does he talk about joy? Because if we're going to think about the reality of the sinful, fallen world we live in, we need, to have, we need to think about the reality that a Savior has come. And so that is the gospel. That is the good news. Notice that Jesus says, these things I speak in the world. Jesus doesn't say, these things I speak to the world from a distance. He doesn't say that. He says, I speak these things in the world. So the good news is that the world is a mess, its people are a mess, but God stepped into the world in the person of Jesus so that we can have a right relationship with him. So before we are going to talk about human trafficking, before we talk about poverty, before we talk about immigration or whatever, or war or whatever issue, is on your mind. Before we talk about those things, we have to begin with the gospel. We have to begin with the good news, and this should bring joy. Even Paul knows this uh, in the book of Philippians, which is known as kind of the book of joy in the New Testament. He says this, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, and here's the kicker, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Before we're going to talk about anything else, we need to talk about how for us as Christians to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if you come 
this morning and you hear that Mission View wants to confront these certain social issues, that's great, but we are not merely humanitarian people. Yes, we care about humans, we care about people, but we, first and foremost, are Christians. David Platt in his book says the goal of the book is the application of the gospel to social issues. And he really emphasizes the application part. He doesn't want us to just sit on our hands and do nothing. But I really want to emphasize the gospel part. Before we champion one social issue, we need to champion the grand social issue that humans need a savior. Humans need a savior because we do not have a right relationship with God. And then the rest flows out of our love for God and others. We look after orphans because we understand what it is to be adopted into the family of God. We care about rescuing those in the sex trade because we understand that God has rescued us from our own bondage to sin. We emphasize marriage a certain way because we believe God has a good and wonderful plan for our relationships with one another. So social issues are not the focal point of Christianity. It is the gospel. So as we begin, what is the situation? We need to understand our world and understand the gospel first before we dive into these things. And that's what this morning and this message is about. So if we understand all this, what exactly is the place of a Christian in this world? Moving on in uh, John 17, starting verse 14, Jesus says this, in his prayer, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In but not of is pretty common in, in church speak. Um, so tomorrow's the 4th of July. Is it tomorrow? Today's the 3rd. Tomorrow's the 4th of July. Um, you all know the story of Paul Revere, right? Paul Revere is the guy that ran through the town saying the British are coming and then alerted the militia so that they could defend themselves. Great story. I actually did a little, bit a little bit of research. He never actually said the British are coming. He said the regulars are on their way. But a lot of people say the Redcoats are coming, which didn't happen either, technically. But I say that because if he had said the Redcoats are coming, everybody would know what he meant. It meant the British were on their way. They had these bright, vibrant red coats. And if somebody saw one of those, you could sure bet that they were likely from across the pond. In the same way, Christians should be set apart. They should be like Christ. They should be made distinct and identifiably so, almost as if they're otherworldly, like they come from across the pond. Easily identifiable. That's what we mean by in but not of. And I don't say that in a proud way, but humbly, intent on honoring God and serving others. So that should be the attitude of a Christian. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, God, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian, do you think of yourself that way? And again, I don't mean you go up to your non-Christian friends and you're like, hey, guess what? Let me tell you about me. Likewise, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And here's the kicker. Ready? Listen to this. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, the end game, the end goal of Christianity is not merely being humanitarian, but championing the grand social issue that is the gospel. Likewise, it's though as if our union with Christ has something to do with our, our origin. We are otherworldly. We have our origin found with God. That is where we have our identity. And Christians have been historically bad at being in but not of the world. Um, there's a guy who wrote a book called Christ and Culture. His name is H. Richard Niebuhr. And he says we will do one of, actually he says five things, but I'm going to break it down a little more. He says we'll either stand on one side and completely isolate ourselves from everything. Remember I mentioned being really ignorant. We'll completely isolate ourselves, uh, think like a, a monastery or something like that. Oh, I can't deal with the world around me. Um, I, I just can't deal with it. I need to completely shelter myself from the world. And even we do that. Or there's the other side where in culture, Christians look no different from the rest of the world. And Christians, you, you probably can't even tell. Or there's the middle where you try to find a balance. Maybe in the middle you'll do something where you kind of compartmentalize God and culture and other things. If you're a parent, I want to ask you something. How do you treat uh, your kids and their use of media? How do you treat your kids and their use of music and television and movies? Do you live in the completely sheltered side where you say they can't watch any movie unless it's PG and a cartoon? Do you say they can only listen, listen to Chris Tomlin? And they can only watch, you know, Fireproof and God's Not Dead? Or do you operate on the other end of the spectrum and say, my kids can watch anything they want, read anything they want, doesn't matter. Being in but not of the world means developing a Christ-centered worldview, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, we've been, again, we've been historically bad at this. This is what we do do. This is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, there are two sociologists that wrote this up. I love it. Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. They said this is, the, this is generally how we will confront issues and generally how we see God. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to solve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. Oh, I missed the first one. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's generally how people see God. But what we're going to talk about in just a second as we move forward is that we, wanted to see, we want to see God differently, and that will influence how we see the world, how we confront these issues that we're talking about. So now that we understand our place, we're supposed to be in but not of, how do we do it? Moving on in John chapter 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. The word sanctify here literally means holy making. And he says sanctify them in truth. So truly holy. Again, not just 
holy in that you're a good person or you do good things or you, you know, give to this organization or you do this for this agency, but holy as God is holy, conforming to the likeness of Christ, continuing to be set apart for the service of God. And then Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, be sent out. So now, being in but not of the world doesn't just have to do with your origin, but also your destination. How do we do that? How do we become sanctified? How do we become holy? I want to posit to you that sanctification and revelation go hand in hand. Sanctification and revelation go hand in hand. He did say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is how he has communicated himself and his will to us. So if you think that you can grow in holiness and you, be, you can become more like Christ without ever opening up this book and you let it sit on your shelf and become all dusty, then you're wasting your time. We, even as Christians, sometimes can start to think about a works-based salvation. Oh, if I just work hard enough or if I, 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 I am... You know, I, I am a social activist for this thing or that thing. If I do that enough, then I am growing in holiness. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is talking about how holiness has to do with his word here. In addition, our authority rests with the holy author and creator. And so without this, everything is hopelessly subjective. This is what David Platt says in his book. A godless worldview leaves us with a hopeless subjectivity concerning good and evil that is dependent on social constructs, that is dependent on culture. So consider even understanding right and wrong. Remember how we mentioned the fall a little bit ago. Satan questioned God's authority. Did God really say that? The fruit that was forbidden was from the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the grave mistake of man is thinking that we have the authority to decide good and evil for ourselves. We think that we have the authority to decide good and evil for ourselves. So when we try to grab hold of that, of determining what, we can, what is good, what is evil, what we can take part in, we essentially subject God to ourselves. So your view of the world, your view of these social issues might have something to do with your view of God and his authority that is found in the word. Instead, we want to develop a Christocentric worldview, a Christ-centered worldview. Let me read Romans chapter 12 in verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So is it possible that we as Christians, when we think about these social issues that we're going to be discussing, need to begin with right thinking about the world and who God is? Uh, I think last time I spoke, I made everybody talk about what they ate. 
Did I do that? Everyone look at the person next to you and tell them what you ate this morning. Now go ahead and tell them, what is your favorite kind of food? And then tell them, what kind of food is best? It's really vague, but do your best. What kind of food is best? For me, this morning, I ate a hash brown from McDonald's. Don't judge me. I ate a hash brown from McDonald's. My favorite kind of food is like southern style barbecue. If you haven't been to Memphis barbecue, do it because it's great. Uh, and what kind of food is best? I was, when I first was asked this question, I said, I don't know, healthy food, I guess. But the point I'm trying to make is if we view Scripture and we view what God says as our ultimate authority, why do we not let that dictate even the small things in our life, such as what we think and how we act on food? Because already in the third chapter of this entire book, food, fruit from this tree is what caused the fall. Our own lust for this fruit. At one point, um, there's bickering about whether or not uh, the church can eat meat that was originally sacrificed to idols by pagans. And so there's this big argue and debate over that. And Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do so for the glory of God. At one point, Jesus says he declares all foods clean. Jesus at one point turns water into wine. Scripture has a lot to say about food. It says your body is your temple. Maybe we should eat healthfully. But the point I'm making is that if we are to develop a Christ, uh, Christocentric worldview, a Christ-centered worldview, we need to let God, his word, and who he is influence how we think about things in its broadest term. So, think about that as we go into these next few, uh, next month or two to talk about these things. What's the situation? The reality is that God is creator but the world has fallen, but that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Christians are to be in but not of the world, and they do that by having a Christ-centered worldview, which is found in God's word. Finally, I want to let you know that there is no realm outside which God touches. In Genesis, in the story of Joseph, he's one of a bunch of brothers. He is sold by his brothers into slavery because they hated him. Uh, he goes and becomes the manager of a house. He's kicked out of the house for something he didn't do. He ends up in prison for a long time. And eventually, he becomes second in command over all of Egypt, and he finally encounters his brothers again. And this is what he says to them. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So we're going to sing a song in just a minute. It's called Brokenness Aside. Think about, as you sing this song, think about the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, yet how God is reconciling the world to himself. We need to start with the gospel before we confront these social issues.
And finally, I actually just want to read. I wasn't going to, but now I want to. I want to read this. This is from uh, an old hymn. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. This is my father's world. Dreaming, I see his face. I open my eyes and in glad surprise cry, the Lord is in this place. This is my father's world from shining courts above. The beloved one, his only son, came a pledge of deathless love. Let's pray together. God, thank you for who you are. You are creator and we are creation and so we are subject to you as you in your pure and holy nature decide what is right and wrong and how things are to work and you've communicated that to us in your word. God, give us peace and patience to be able to read and understand and know these things and give us courage to act on them even as Christ has said the world might hate us. You are good and you are holy and you have begun the work of reconciliation as you have sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for us so that we can have a right relationship with you. And God, we look forward to the time where we no longer have to live here but live in a perfect state glorified with you in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.